I'm Madalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. What lengths would you pursue to have a child? How much will pressure placed by family and custom change you to your core? How long does deception and its reverberations have to run before you decide it has fundamentally changed everything about the person you love and the person you yourself have become? These are the issues that Ayobami Adebayo tackles in her debut novel, Stay With Me. Ayobami joins me now from Lagos, Nigeria. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's really great that you could join me, even uh, even all, all the way from Lagos. Um, now this is yeah. A, it's a beautiful story about all the issues that I just mentioned, and it hinges on a custom that most people may not be aware of um, that, that happens in modern Nigeria, and that's polygamy, purely in the service of, purely in the, uh, in the service of producing a child. Um, can you tell me about that particular polygamous custom? Yes. Um, so, I mean, before modern times, traditionally, many African societies, at least many Nigerian societies and communities, uh, would allow a man to have more than one wife. So, as many wives as he could uh, take care of financially, that was sort of the norm. Mm-hmm. And um, but recently that has not been. I mean, it's no longer very fashionable. But when usually when a couple has been married for a while and they don't have any children, it then becomes an option that the husband sometimes takes. And even if he doesn't take that option, you have friends, his family members, who ask him, why don't you just marry a second wife and have children? without second wife if you're having trouble with having children with the first wife. So even though it's not quite fashionable, it's still something that's acceptable if you choose to do that. And it's a tribal custom, not a religious custom, right? Um, no, it's not a religious custom. It's, it's, um, it's a tribal custom, yes. It's not um. tied to religion in this part of the world. Um, now, you, why did you decide that this was a story you wanted to write about? Um, I just couldn't. I mean, I wrote a short story a couple of years before I wrote this novel about the same couple. Mm-hmm. And after I had written that short story, I just could not forget about them. I really couldn't stop thinking about them. Uh, in the interval, I was working on other things. I wrote other short stories. But yesterday, and I can just sort of stood out and I would stand somewhere and just be observing and I would think, oh, Yejide would talk like that or she would use that gesture that the lady I'm looking at just used. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking about their marriage because the short story I wrote was a, one scene where the couple was breaking up and they were having what was a final argument. So I continue to think about how they might have come to that point and all the things that made two people who were very much in love uh, at the time when they got married get to a point where at least one of them feels that there's absolutely no hope for for the relationship anymore. And that's what I think is really interesting about it. You know, the couple, Yejide and Akin, they're a modern couple who fall in love practically at first sight. Um, They're committed to each other, 
they have a successful life together. Um, but four years of being married without a child puts a stress on the marriage um, that is really hard to deal with. Um, and, and talk about those stresses on them um, that leads to this um, this decision uh, where there is a second wife who comes into the picture. Yes. So for your debate, she, her mother dies when she's very young, right at the point where she's born, actually. And she grows up without the kind of support that a mother would provide in a polygamous home. Her father has several wives. And what often happens in that kind of family is that your ally is your mother because, I mean, there's so many of you competing for your father's attention that you might not even have a very real relationship with him. So the person, your uh-huh. point person, the person who argues your case and makes the case for you that you need school fees or whatever is your mother. And so when a mother is absent in that situation, I think that loss is felt even more keenly. So this is how Yejide grows up. And then she gets married and she thinks that finally she has her own family. But Aki also comes from a family and is the first son in that family. And there are very specific expectations of him. He's expected to be successful, to be an example to his siblings, and of course to have children. So you have two people who have come together and are happy with each other. But Aki's mother in particular and other members of his family begin to insist that their son must have a child. Now, if Yejude had right. mother was alive, she would probably have a support system, somebody that she could trust to look out for her in that situation. But what she quickly realizes is that when it comes down to it, a mother-in-law is more concerned about her own son than her daughter-in-law. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, what's interesting, the relatives are such a presence in this book. The mother-in-law, aunts and uncles, um, who will all be recognizable to people from many different cultures. And it's that family, not the nuclear family of husband, wife, and child, but the rest of the family that's so crucial in this story as agents of this plot. Um, Is that a fair assessment, you think? Yes, I think so. Uh, I, I think it was interesting to look at the impacts that that extended family can have on sort of the nuclear family that's trying to take shape. But it's also part of that extended family and people in that extended family feel that they have a stake in this marriage and they need to have a say. Right. Um, and it's an incredible pressure that she feels Yejide uh, as essentially an orphan, and also she has, you know, her father took other wives uh, in addition to her mother. Um, now, Yejide tries everything to conceive. Well, they both do modern medicine, old customs, following folklore. And one of the really wonderful set pieces that you have um, is she's climbing up a mountain with an unblemished goat. Um, and uh, she's even pushed in this sort of delirium to simulate breastfeeding a goat because she's told that this will, is what will help make her pregnant. And I loved how you juxtapose sort of the old methods plus the new methods this couple were trying. Um, what did you want to convey there? Was it a sense of their sort of desperation almost? Yes. Um, 
and it's interesting that you mentioned that. And for while I was working on the novel, it was one of the scenes that came very early on. And every time I would go over it, I would really consider, do I need to have this? Why is this scene here? Is this necessary? And then I started talking to some older women who I knew, and some of them shared some of the things that they'd been advised to do, cajoled into doing, pressured into doing, before they had their children. And I, I, I thought that that scene was necessary to convey that desperation, like you said, in that, I mean, at the beginning, she's not even interested in all of this. But it gets to a yeah. point where she asks, uh, I think sort of just tells herself, what do I have to lose anyway? Let me just try it. Well, I think particularly with the threat of a second wife who has essentially been presented to the couple. Yes, that, um, mm-hmm. So that sector think, is there. Yes, and and I think, of course, as you can imagine, that changes the dynamics in the relationship yeah, on many levels. The power dynamics have shifted. Now she has to think about what if this second wife has children before I do what's going to happen to me? Will this marriage even continue? And, and, and I think at this point, as you pointed out, these are people who love each other. And I think that she's come to a point where she's not, of course, she wants children, but she also realizes that that might be the only way to salvage a marriage. You know, so if she right. has children, maybe somehow she can face the second wife out and they can continue life as before. Right. Now, in so many cultures where there isn't a child after a few years of marriage, it's always considered the woman's problem, that there's something wrong with her. But I think you're quite sympathetic also to the pressure placed upon Akin as the firstborn son. Um how did did you think initially that you wanted to convey him in this sort of sympathetic light and that there is pressure upon the man that is a different kind of pressure? Yes. Um, I was also, like you said, very interested in the man's perspective of it because you hear all of the stories. As I had quite a number of stories like that while I was growing up, and sometimes it just strikes you that some of these men are under so much pressure themselves. And you also understand that they grew up in a world where it was the norm. It was even the right thing to do if you were particularly affluent to have more than one wife. So even though Mm -hmm. they're modern men and they've told themselves, oh, I'm going to be with just one woman, the fact that they grew up with that as something that was the right thing to do and as as an acceptable thing to do, and I think it's easy for them to talk themselves into believing that they can handle this, that they can manage the situation, that somehow there will be a third person in a marriage and things can somehow continue as before. So it's very interested in him as a character, particularly as a first son and a, and a first child, the fact that there, there's all this weight of expectation on him that is supposed to be excellent. The excellent example, um, the proof of his mother's success as as, as a parent, as a person, and he bears all that weight of responsibility. I wanted to look at how that impacts on him also, you know. 
Right. Did you um, talk to many people who had gone through this uh, situation of uh, polygamous marriage in pursuit of um, children? I mean, it's difficult, I think, to ask people questions uh, about that. But I've been able to observe because, I mean, some of my older uncles have more than one wife. And Mm -hmm. I remember there was a time when we visited one of them. And what the second wife, what, what struck me was that she was talking about how the third wife had come in. And she found it so bitter. And this was after about 15 years. And until then, you know, I had sort of thought of them as the happy polygamists. You know, yeah. we didn't hear any stories about them fighting. I mean, the second and the third wife seemed to get along very well. And I was in the room that day when that discussion was going on. And I, I remember I was quite young. I was probably 11 or 12. And I was just struck by how bitter this woman still sounded after all these years. And I thought to myself, when you're the second wife, how do you think the first wife who right. <laughs> imagined that she would be the only one? How do you think she feels if you as the second wife are this beater? So I think that sort of observing several relationships like that and seeing how I've never seen one work out, really. I, I mean, right. the people, I mean, that was the one that I thought was working. But apparently, beneath all of the, and there's a show of unity in court that people do. So the wives come out and they wear the same thing and you just, it could look very, um, very fashionable, especially with their right. party and all of that. But once you, I, I'm always interested in what lies beneath the surface, you know, and once you go beneath the surface, a lot of things come out. There's a lot of bitterness. Children, even who grow up in polygamous families, their, their worldview is sometimes very different. You know, there's all that suspicion that they carry from when they're very young and the impact it has on people. Yeah, even, I think it's, yeah. Uh, it's a remarkable story, and I think you really bring an authenticity uh, to telling what a situation, a polygamous situation might be like. Um now, you uh, alternate the story through the, the voices of Yujide and Akin. Um, it's become something of a popular technique about when writing about marriage in particular. Uh, was that how you started writing the book, or did you come to the realization um, that you said earlier that you thought about Yujide a lot? Um, did you start writing about her and then realize, no, at the same time, I'm going to tell the story through his eyes as opposed to talking about him through her. Yeah, so I initially was thinking a lot, like you said, about EHD. And when I started write, when I wrote the first draft of the novel, I wrote about 60% of it from a perspective. And then I wrote the final 40% from his perspective. And then I read it and... I realized that by the time the reader gets to him, they've made up their mind about who he is, and there's nothing he can say to get any form of empathy from the reader anymore. So while I was revising, I think the experience I had with that first draft 
made me more determined to still have his voice in there, no matter what. And finally, I figured out that it was better to alternate the narrative so that you get a perspective and you're getting his perspective. And even if you don't agree with him, you can at least understand him. Right. Well, I think it works very effectively as a reader. I can say that to you. Um, and, you know, the book, it's a it's not a fat book. You fill a lot in. Uh, you deal with a lot in a relatively short book. And what kind of took my breath away was Yajide and Akin do eventually have a baby. And that is not the big, neat and happy ending. There's still a whole other half second half of the book to go um and it's really hard to talk about the book uh now anymore without giving things away um there are plot twists that just you know took my breath away and kept me turning the page uh and without saying anything about the twists themselves obviously um what to me they revealed was sort of both desperate desperation but also an immense amount of heartbreak um did you plot those twists out beforehand or did they evolve as you were writing the stories? Yeah, I I, I didn't plot them. And I realized that the, the book itself, as it is, feels quite plotted. But I just, I didn't. I just was writing and some of the twists would come to me at a point where I was stuck. And or I had written a scene and I was just feeling there's something here in the dialogue that they're trying to say but I can't hear and all of a sudden I just realized oh my god of course that's what's really going on that they're not talking about so I did try to plot the novel several times but every time I did that I just wouldn't be able to go on so with the first few drafts I would just write to the end and just write to the end and as I was going along, I kept discovering um, all those things. And I think it made the process very interesting for uh-huh. me. Uh, sometimes I thought, like, oh, my God, what am I going to learn of all those people today? Well, it's a process that certainly keeps the reader interested. Um, you know, it's a book about marriage and love and family and brotherhood and parenthood. Um, there is so much more to talk about. Uh, with this book, but I would give it away. So instead, I encourage you all listening to read this extraordinary debut, Stay With Me by Ayobami Adebayo. You can read about this and other great books by women authors at 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52Women.com, and subscribe to the podcast at all fine purveyors of podcasts. Ayobami, thank you so much for joining me today from Lagos, Nigeria. Thank you very much, Majalika. It was lovely to chat with you.